while it may feel that racism in science is a historic thing, it's very much a current issue that Black women and Black people in general have to face every day, even when they go to the doctor's office. Welcome to Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I'm Kira Milani. I'm joined tonight by Amara McNeil, a sophomore at Fordham University, and Talia Moda, an adjunct professor and molecular immunologist. They're here to discuss the long history of racism in science and the lasting effects of racism in modern day healthcare. My name is Amara McNeil. I am a sophomore theater major with a concentration in lighting design, and I go to Fordham's Lincoln Center campus. Um, I am also a chair of the BIPOC Theater Alliance at Fordham, um, which is a new group that we formed, a group of BIPOC theater students, you know, fighting for um, racial equality and equity in the theater program. Um, Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Hi, my name is Talia Mota, and I have a PhD in virology and immunology and a master's of public health and infectious disease epidemiology. And I research a cure for HIV as a postdoctoral fellow at Weill Cornell Medicine, and I'm a adjunct professor here at Fordham University, and I teach a course called Human Function and Dysfunction. Let's get started then by taking a look at the foundation of racism in the scientific arena. So Professor Moda, could you tell us a bit about the early perceptions of race and questions about race that researchers had, you know, decades ago, centuries ago? And what role did those racial biases they had play in their work? Yeah, so race was a fairly new idea sort of at the forefront of science in the 16th century, where race was instead referred to as a group of people from a common stock, like a family or a tribe or even a small nation. And eventually, um, race became a notion that was hard and fixed and people couldn't choose and in essence essence, passed down to their children. Um, So Carl Linnaeus was famous for classifying the natural world from the smallest insects to the largest beasts and had this idea that if flowers, for example, could vary by color and shape, then perhaps humans could also be classified into groups. And this was about... 1758, where he published his book and sort of laid out the categories that we still use today and used four main categories corresponding to the Americas, uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa, um, and classified humans as red, white, yellow, or black. And in attempting to classify humans the way he classified flowers, he sort of wanted to establish that humans came from a different place, that they evolved independently as race, whereas Charles Darwin came in as the grandfather of evolution, and he wanted to establish real facts about human difference, um, showing there were unanswered questions, but essentially wanted to demonstrate that the human species was one common ancestor, and that humanity had a single origin, and that race did not evolve separately and that therefore humans are more similar across the whole population of humanity than people were trying to establish through defining race through science. Right now in the modern day, we're seeing a very widespread fear mongering and even like in some instances, flat out rejection of the coronavirus vaccines across this country. You know, and a lot of us, you know, at first glance can be a bit shocked that some people are so adamantly against getting what could be a life-saving vaccine. But even before this pandemic happened, trust in vaccines in medical research had already been 
worn very, very thin from decades of misconduct in research. And a lot of that misconduct was drawn across very, very harsh racial lines. The Tuskegee trials are a terrible example of this. Could you tell us a bit about what happened there? Yeah, so there is obviously a deep-seated mistrust of um, Blacks and Latino populations in the medical um, industry today. And the Tuskegee trials were initiated in 1932, and the actual name of the study was Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And this was essentially a study that recruited 600 Black men, only Black men, 399 with syphilis, 201 without syphilis. And there was no appropriate informed consent. The consent was that they were, they, the participants agreed to be studied in terms of being evaluated for any medical problems, but some weren't even told that they were infected with syphilis. So this study was only meant to go on for six months, but it ended up lasting for 40 years. And the biggest issue was that when penicillin became approved as the successful treatment for syphilis in 1947, The individuals in the study, first of all, were not informed that there was a treatment for syphilis, and second, were not offered penicillin to treat their syphilis. So there are a few STIs that are deadly out there, and syphilis, in fact, is one of them. And during these 40 years, 128 men died of their syphilis-related complications. 40 wives in the studies also contracted syphilis, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. And syphilis in its tertiary stage, in its latent phase, can have a catastrophic impact on the heart, the liver, and the brain. It can cause paralysis in the legs, and it can cause um, mental degeneration and a lot of really horrible symptoms and ultimately lead to death. So if you think about this historic perspective, and this isn't the only example, this is a real famous example of horrible misconduct of ethics and in in medical practice, it would make sense that Black individuals would always be skeptical forever about anything that is new. Um, Of course, this vaccine happened very fast. I can tell you it's it's a really fantastic vaccine, but why, why wouldn't they be hesitant towards anything that the white medical community wants to throw at them? And, you know, since the beginnings of widespread medical research, data collection at large has been really focused on the benefit of white people. 90% of the genetic data collected from humans are from white humans. And then with that, you know, any treatment that may be developed from it is going to largely benefit and be structured around benefiting white people. So beyond that, what are some of the detractors? What are some of the real world effects that we're still living with today from projects and and discoveries that were heavily racially biased that happened decades and decades ago? Yeah, so I think um, given that 96% of genomic studies are performed on people of European ancestry, so essentially white people, there, that only leaves room for 4% diversity in what we know about DNA. And the way technology has evolved in the last two decades and how much more uh, the accumulation of scientific information we have, it does really seem that we can push medicine down an individualized path. So of course, some diseases are quite standard across populations and they can all be treated in, in a very similar way, but then you get into more complicated diseases and cancer, for example, which is very different in each person. And when you have diseases that 
would definitely benefit from individualized medicine and genomic data. If the data we have are 96% from white people, we were going to be missing a lot of what we call single nucleotide polymorphism. So something that might be one nucleotide change in the DNA sequence that can have a really different impact on the way a protein is expressed in a cell. And if we don't consider that there are differences in DNA this way that would contribute to an individualized medicine or even across a, a dr new drug treatment, for example, um, we might be missing out on the ability to treat uh, all, all people that are actually affected by the disease. And then this does continue on into the fact that most clinical trial participants are white as well. So we might be looking to treat a disease using this new therapeutic intervention in white people. And then if we go into an indigenous population, Latinx or even black population, maybe the drug doesn't work in them the same way because this, for example, single nucleotide polymorphism impacts the way that the drug can be metabolized. And this has been seen previously in a study with diabetes. So we really do need to increase diversity in genomic research and in clinical trials, but it's not just about increasing their participation by numbers. The whole point is that we have to gain their trust. We have to make sure that they're willing to participate, that they want to participate, and that they have all the information they need to know exactly what the trial means and what how it could benefit them and their community. And as we've seen so often throughout history today, it's black women who are really receiving the brunt of this flawed medical system. Amara, could you tell us a bit about the issues that black women have faced throughout American history and today when it comes to healthcare? Yeah, of course. Um, I briefly remember uh, Professor Moda mentioning something in class today about um, how Charles Darwin, when he was discovering, when he was you know studying evolution, he, um, there were two groups in which he considered to be, um, I think it was evolutionarily inferior, and that was black people and women. Uh, and I think we've, we see that a lot in, in American history where two of the main groups who are um, oppressed are black people and women. And black women stand at the intersection of that, which means they're often hit with racism and they're often hit with sexism as well, misogyny. Um, and so it seems to me almost that the history of Black women's experience with the racism in science and in the medical field even predates some of the science we were talking about earlier. I think, um, Professor Modi, you said that the year, it was like 1708, I think you said, um, was like the start of when they started to classify race. However, the first um, enslaved Africans were brought to the Americas in 1619. Um, and from the start, doctors really used the enslaved population to test out any surgeries or medicine that they were that were still in the trial phase. And they would often operate on black women. Um, they would often perform hysterectomies without any form of medicine, um, just completely disregarding, you know, the fact that these women could be in pain. And that set a precedent in a culture that continues into the medical field today. Even today, Black women have some of the highest rates of, you know, pregnancy-related mortality. Um, they are have some of the highest rates of HIV and AIDS. And that is those are issues that still just aren't addressed. There's a coin that was current, coined in 1994 called reproductive justice. And that is the idea that we really need to restructure the way 
we teach about and learn about reproductive health to include the ways in which Black women have been denied reproductive health care. And, you know, that can mean that they need more access to health facilities, to um, providers, to medicine. But I think that while it may feel that racism in science is a historic thing, it's very much a current issue that Black women and Black people in general have to face every day, even when they go to the doctor's office, you know, they have to risk whether or not their doctor is going to believe them when they say they're in pain or, um, you know, just think that they're exaggerating or that they can withstand a higher amount of pain because they are Black. Now we're nearing the end of our time, but I want to start to close with this quote. It's that science provided the intellectual authority for racism. Can we talk a bit about what that exactly means? How and in what ways have, quote unquote, scientific claims that are actually just deeply, deeply seeped in ignorance and hate worsened racial bias in our country and throughout the world? I honestly think that people will believe science when they want to, and they won't believe science when they don't want to. And I think the fact the quote says science provided the intellectual authority for racism is because scientists were trying to define race using science and medicine. And therefore, because, you know, people who are so educated and at the top of their field, famous scientists, famous doctors in those times were saying this and publishing scientific articles on it, that justified racism because it gave it credence. It, first of all, established it, but second of all, wrote it in stone, published scientific articles on it. And, you know, I, I love science and I take everything that I read so, so, you know, seriously because the science that I read to form the ideas in my HIV cure science, I, it's all peer reviewed. So it goes through this rigorous process to be published. And so, you know, what we say, what we publish, what we put out there for the world is part of discovery. So I think that's how it gave literally the intellectual authority for racism because racism was being defined as a science. My question for you then is, what do we need to do in the modern scientific arena to make science now instead the intellectual authority for change or equality? We can interchange that. So I think in order to accomplish that what we really have to do and start out with and set out to do is increase diversity in our studies and do whatever it takes to increase this diversity. We can't just open the gates for a clinical trial and say, oh, we want to recruit 25% white people, 25% black people, 25% Latina, 25% indigenous. We need to get out into these communities, communicate with them if they have particular cultural attributes, we can talk to the cultural leaders, communicate with them, first ask their permission. Is it okay that we want to study this in your community? And once we've gone through that, make sure that the informed consent on any study is understandable. I mean, some of these HIV drugs that we're using in our clinical trials, if I weren't a scientist, I wouldn't have any idea what they're even talking about. So how can one be informed unless they truly understand what's going on? So it might take a bit more effort in different populations to, first of all, make sure that they understand exactly what they're doing, that they can go back, think about it, come back to us with questions and really involve them in the process rather than using them as a tool to study a drug. 
So I think if we develop mechanisms where we can become more involved in the recruitment process and how we do recruitment for clinical trials, I think that's a first step in, in actually increasing the diversity because we have to gain their trust. If we don't gain trust of individuals, we're never going to get them into these genome-wide studies, into clinical trials. And until we increase the diversity, there won't be equity in health. I wanted to briefly speak to both the quote and the question. While there is racism in science, just as there is racism in science, and for there to be racism in science, there are also racists in science, right? And so I think we have to remember that when we're talking about, you know, why this racism exists in science, it's because a lot of the scientists who were also creating the the vaccines for the diseases that save us every day, they were racist, and they genuinely believed that Black people were inferior to them. And I think that's an issue we still have today, where although scientists may not be racist, they're oftentimes ignorant or just they do not know, you know, this history. And so I think while we can talk about how to get the community to trust scientists more, but we also need to talk about about how scientists need to educate themselves on racism um, and on the history of people of color in the science field. Um, But we also just need more black and brown scientists, you know, as we know, there are a multitude of barriers to what you can, how you become a scientist, you know, whether it be economic or, you know, where you went to school. But I think the way you're going to get communities of color to trust the science community is that they can see themselves in the science community, which is something they haven't seen for ever, even now. And I think about how, you know, with the, you know, COVID-19 vaccine, the way that they were trying to get the Black community to trust the vaccine is by saying that it was developed by a Black scientist. We need more of that. I need to hear that more things are developed by Black scientists. Um, So that was really just the last point that I wanted to make. That's a beautiful point. I completely agree with you. That was Talia Moda and Amara McNeil joining me to discuss the history of racism in science and health. Our music today is courtesy of bensound.com. This has been Community Dialogues. Thanks for listening in.